Well, hello, Austin Stone. My name is Ryan King, and I have the privilege of serving here as the Director of International Missions. Uh, a little bit more about me before we continue into the message. Uh, I've been here for a little bit over 10 years now. I came here in the summer of 2006 as an intern in the area of equipping, uh, equipping and missions. And it's been a joy for me to see what God has done through this body. As he's grown this body and as he's made our church truly a church that's for this city. And more so as he's made our church a church that's for the nations. So God has continued to move in powerful ways. And one of the powerful ways he moved in my life is he introduced me to my wife while I was working here. Uh, Teresa, my wife, and I met while we were working on staff here together. She was serving in the role of uh, equipping in, in women's missional communities. And so we met while serving on staff. And we've been married now for seven years. And uh, we now have three children. And this is, uh, yeah, this is a great shot. This is like the only shot we have of our family all in one spot, you can tell, with all these kids that keep moving all the time. The oldest there is Caleb. He is uh, four years old. Avery, our daughter, is two and a half, and the one strapped to Teresa there, that's like his permanent condition, is uh, just now turned a year uh, at the beginning of this month. And so it is a privilege for me to get to share with you this morning because uh, for me and for our family, this church body is our home. It's, it's been amazing as I think about over the years how I've had the privilege of, like you, sitting under the teaching from the word from guys like Matt and Halim and Kevin and Todd and so many others, and how I've been encouraged consistently to look to Christ, and how I've been challenged by the word to, to grow in my affection for him and lay down my life in obedience to him. And as I think about how the elders in the community, uh, the men and women in this body have so deeply ministered to our family, even recently as we walked through various trials, I have never seen the love of the bride of Christ more deeply than I have through this body. And as I get to hang out with the men and women that, that are part of this worship ministry and this worship team, I've never been so consistently reminded of how completely out of touch I am with what is cool today. And uh, all joking aside, though, it, it's actually uh, such a privilege, isn't it, that we get to be led by men and women who are so thoughtful in what we sing to our Lord. They're so, they, they, they care so much about being theologically rich in the words that we sing and, and so passionate in their worship. And one of the things that excites me about that is, is because for us as a church, missions wasn't something, something that the, the pastor looked at for our church and said, you know what, this is something a local church ought to do. This is a department every church should have. For us as the Austin Stone, missions for us has always been an overflow of that worship for Christ. As we see his name lifted high, we say, you deserve your worship for your name. And, and so the Austin Stone from the beginning has been a church that's for the nations because we desire to see Christ worshipped among every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so early on, when, when Matt and the elders and others looked at uh, what, what Christ was worthy of, of his worship, and they looked at the world today, they saw people groups, many people groups that we call unreached peoples that that currently do not know Christ. They currently are not worshiping the risen Lord. And, and unreached peoples, I want to define it for you real quick, is, is different than simply unevangelized. See, unevangelized, uh, we can all think of people that are unevangelized. We, we can think of people that have never heard the gospel. That might be our next door neighbor. That might be someone that's at work. Uh, they've lived so far a life and they have not heard the good news and the message of Christ. And we as a church endeavor and strive together as one body to declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus Christ to everybody in this city. And that's good and we're continuing to do that. But unrich peoples are actually different. Uh, unrich peoples are, are peoples by definition that, that not simply have not heard the gospel, 
By definition, they live among a people group where there is nobody that's a believer or very few believers. So it's, it's that no one's there actually to tell them the gospel. It's people like the Turks living in Turkey. In Turkey today, there's 70 million turkeys alive. And, uh, and among them, among best estimates, there's about six to 7,000 known believers. You can pull up the slide real quick. That's comparable to, as the Austin Stone, the average weekly attendance of our church body on any given week is maybe conservatively six to 7,000 people. That'd be the equivalent of us saying as a church, our, ta- our task as a body of believers gathered together is to proclaim the gospel to a population larger than that of Texas and California combined. That's just overwhelming, and it's, it's actually pretty hard to wrap your mind around. And so where this landed and hit home for me is on my first trip to Turkey. I went to Istanbul, and a couple things struck me. First was, uh, other than kind of obvious language differences and a few other cultural cues, I could have just as easily been in the middle of New York City. There were businessmen, businesswomen walking around in suits, going to and from work. There were kids running around, joking, having a good time. There were mothers walking their children to school. Traffic was just as crazy as New York or even a Mopac in Austin. It was, uh, it was, it was just the same. And then, and then I realized something else that was, was profound to me. I realized that I could stand in the middle of a street like this. I could stand there all day and let this just mass of humanity pass by, by the hundreds, by the thousands, maybe even by the millions. And it hit me that I would never even see another follower of Christ. Much less would I even see someone that probably even knew a follower of Christ or ever shared the gospel with them. And so we as a, as a church, when we see that and when we think about that, we know biblically that God has created the Turks to worship him. So when we see that, we, we know that it is our desire to see him worship there. And so in light of that, seven years ago, Matt, along with the elders, cast a vision to our body. He said, he asked us as a church, would we see a hundred people step up and begin the process of going to the nations for two years or more among the unreached to see disciples made and, and multiplied among these people groups so they would know Christ and worship him. And God responded that day. He was, he was making it clear that something was happening in our body because that Sunday alone, after all the services, we had over 600 people show up for info sessions to learn more about what they could do. By God's grace, we saw 120 people by the end of that year begin the process to get equipped and trained to go to the nations. And we saw every year, we saw people going to the nations. And five years later, after that first vision was cast, we, saw our hundredth celeb- uh, we celebrated our hundredth goer going out to the unreached, to the ends of the earth to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In the last two years, we've seen 78 more go. For a total of 178 men and women, just like yourselves, who have laid aside everything they knew, everything that was familiar, and went to the ends of the earth for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that, and we not only celebrate the Lord is continuing to raise up more laborers for the harvest from our body, that they're going to some of the hardest places on earth to proclaim the good news of the gospel, but we celebrate what God is doing through those as they've gone, because that's the point, right? What we want is transformation of the hearts of men and women who have never heard about Jesus Christ. And so I just want to celebrate with you real quick. In the last four months alone, among the goers that are overseas, we've seen 3,300 conversations about Jesus Christ. 3,300 gospel conversations with men and women that have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ and never heard the gospel. And through that, since we started sending goers seven years ago, we've seen 
46 churches forming. That's 46 groups of men and women who are unbelievers from the unreached gathering around the scriptures, beginning to study the word of God and begun forming as churches. And that's amazing because what we want to see is, is we want to see as they grow in the word and as they're transforming their hearts, we want to see them uh, worship Christ. And, and this is what we should really get excited about as a church. Since the beginning, once we sent our first goer, we've seen 144 new believers, new brothers and sisters in Christ that have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and are now walking with our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. That is something we should be excited about. Because that is something we should be excited about in, in Austin, Texas alone. If that were to happen here in Austin, that is something we get excited about. But the reality is, if you think about it, 144 new believers. This is 144 new believers, new followers of Christ, who are likely the very first in their culture. Generation after generation, hundreds of years, maybe even centuries among their people group. This is the first person, these are the first people who have ever considered, how might I love my neighbor that they might know Christ. This is the first 144 people among their culture group that is thinking, how might I minister to the orphan and to the widow with the love of Christ? These are the first 144 people that are thinking, how can I raise up my children? How can we raise up the next generation that from a very young age they would even know about Christ and walk in his ways for the rest of their lives? And that should stir our hearts with passion as we think about that. So we look at the nations, we should be burning within us thinking, God, you deserve more glory. And as we think about people groups like the Turks, we'd be saying, Lord, we long for you to be glorified among the Turks, that they would be worshipers of you. But many of us probably this morning would agree um, that those things should happen. We would agree that God deserves more worship. And we'd even agree and think it's good that people are going and and ministering to those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. But if we're honest with ourselves today, most of us, if we thought about it, have a hard time thinking about when is the last time we thought about Christ deserving more worship? It'd be hard for us to think about the last time that we've considered other people groups or whether or not they have access to the gospel. And why is that? See, the reality is... um, To move beyond just simply a a mental agreement to a deep heart longing, what's lacking for us is likely prayer. The reality is where prayer is present in our lives for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the nations, there will be this passion in our hearts. And so what I want to talk about today is prayer because I believe it's essential to the life of our church. The reality is we, by God's grace, hopefully will always see the Lord uh, send people from our body and we'll always be a church that agrees that we ought to be a church for the nations. But what's at stake here, if we don't understand our role in prayer, is our very hearts. If we don't see prayer as something more than simply a a discipline or, or a secondary call to action for those of us who are over here to support those who are truly doing the work over there, We'll never know the joy that Christ has invited us into to labor alongside our brothers and sisters for the sake of his name. And so if you have your Bibles with me, I'd like to look at the word and see what it teaches us about prayer. You can turn to Romans 15, verse 30. We're going to be there in just a second. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on the screen with us. It'll be up there as well. 
See, the Apostle Paul was someone that had this heart that we long to have as a church. He spent his entire life, poured out his life for the sake of Christ, receiving worship among the unreached. And so we're picking up in chapter 15, and it's toward the end of his letter to the Roman church. And as he's at the end of this letter, he's starting to close up, and he's, he's talking about his plans for continued ministry. He's going to take a gift of money down to the church in Jerusalem that's under persecution, and then he hopes to go by the, the church there in Rome he's writing to and be refreshed by them as he, as he set his eyes on Spain and saying, I'm going to go where the gospel has not yet been preached. And so his ambition was always to press the gospel out to people who had never heard And so what I want to think about today as we hear this text, as we read this together, the question I want in your minds is, in all the faithfulness that that Paul has seen in ministry, all the fruit and all the success he's seen in ministry, and all the suffering and all the struggle he's walked through as he's, he's been walking in obedience to Christ, with all that wisdom, what is the most important thing that he asks the church in Rome to do with him in partnership? Let's ask that question as we read this text says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So what's his most important ask of the church in Rome? He asks that they pray. But Paul's not just simply asking that they would pray because he can't think of anything better for them to do. See, prayer for Paul is not some spiritual equivalent to busy work. Rather, exactly the opposite. He, he, he says, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, would you strive with me in prayer? That is the language of pleading. And so what Paul is saying is, is we, want, we ought to, as a church, strive together in prayer because it's the most important work. And so as we look further, what I want to talk about today is What can we learn about Paul's belief about prayer? What can we learn as a church today about what motivated Paul to pray? And then I want to talk about what, in that motivation, how does he ask the church to join him in prayer? And then I want to talk a little bit about what are the specific ways that he asked the church to pray? And then finally, as a church together, I want to talk about a couple practical applications about how we as a church can continue to grow together in our prayers for Christ's glory among the nations. So the first question, how, what did Paul believe about prayer? What motivated him? Paul couches his first request for prayer. Uh, first, he couches that request in the statement that Christ is Lord. See, Paul's already unpacked previously in this letter to the Romans that his view of the sovereignty of God in all things. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul believes that there's not a single detail in life that God is not in control over. See, he doesn't think he's out trying to accomplish some mission that, that, that God has given him, and, and God has the best of ambitions and the best of, of desires, but really it's still up in the air whether or not he can accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. Rather, it's... it's it's because he knows that God is in control that he can approach him in prayer and go out and, and, and go out on the mission that God has sent him to do. The reality is we could go on for a series of sermons talking about the interaction between God's sovereignty and our prayer, but the point we ought to see today, the point I want to make today, is it's precisely because God is in control that Paul feels he can approach him in prayer. Now, secondly, Paul calls the attention of the church in Jerusalem to the love of the Holy Spirit. 
See, Paul doesn't just simply think he's some kind of slave that's been sent out by this all-powerful God that's distant and unknowable to accomplish some kind of impossible task all by himself. Rather, as he's previously explained in chapter 8 of Romans, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, through the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, Paul now knows he is a child of God. He's not simply going to God in prayer because he sees him as simply all-powerful and distant. He's actually emboldened in prayer because he sees that this all-powerful God is his Father. And so it's in that light that he's asking the church along with him, fellow believers in Christ, fellow children of God, to intercede with him before their Heavenly Father together. I told you earlier that... uh, My wife and I have three children, and they're all under four, so our house is understandably a zoo. Uh, When our kids are not screaming together in joy as they're playing, they're screaming at each other because they're not letting each other play. And when there's moments of silence, they're rare, but when there's moments of silence, it's usually not a good sign. And so it's, it's in that midst of constant chaos that the other day we were trying to leave. I don't even remember where we were trying to go, but we were trying to get out of the house, and it's just a, it's, it's crazy trying to get them all out of the door. And Caleb pulled on my shirt, my oldest boy, and he, he looked up at me and he said, Dad, Avery's crying. She can't get her shoes on. Can you help her? Now that struck me for two reasons. First reason was he didn't simply pick up her shoes, throw them across the room and laugh like he normally would. The second reason was because I saw in my, my, my son's heart he was moved with compassion. He saw his sister in need and he saw her in sorrow and, and he came to me and asked me to help her. And that's amazing to me. It moved my heart. And so naturally, as I looked down and, and he looked up at me and I saw the compassion in his eyes, I told him, son, they're Velcro. <laughs> it's not rocket science. You can figure it out. Uh, no, uh, of course I didn't say that. Of course I didn't say that. It was, I was moved with compassion by my son's desire. See, in a four-year-old, like my son's uh, eyes, dad is sovereign. Dad is all-powerful. There's nothing dad cannot do. And so because he knew he couldn't do anything, he approached me and said, you can do it for me. And the reality is, uh, I would have been discouraged if, if my son had simply sat there while his sister was crying, thinking, you know what? I can't do anything about this. Dad's certainly able to do something about this, so there's nothing I should do. I'll just sit here and wait for it to happen. But when we think about our sovereign God, aren't we tempted to think, if God is all-powerful, if he is sovereign and in control of all things, why should I even pray? See, Caleb wasn't uh, restrained from praying or asking of me because he knew I could do something. It was exactly because he knew I was powerful and could act to meet the need that he approached me. And that is what this relationship of love together as a family ought to look like. That is what Paul is asking the church to do with him. He's saying, because we have an all-powerful God, because this God is our loving Father, let us go together. Will you pray on my behalf? Will you, as my brothers and sisters, say, Father, will you help our brother? And see, that's the point I want us to see, to say, see today. This is, this is an important point for our church today, that, that that is the opportunity we have together. So he's asking the church to pray. 
But what, how is he asking them to pray on his behalf? Let's look back at the text. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. See, Paul asks them to strive with him. The the word strive here in the Greek carries this meaning of, of wrestling alongside, struggling with, fighting alongside together. See, we know Paul in his life and ministry endured a bunch of suffering for the sake of the gospel. But what Paul's asking here for the church is to say, to the same degree that I've laid my life down, to the same degree that I'm striving and agonizing for the sake of the gospel, will you join me in your prayers with that same degree of effort? See, the, the, the illustration that helps this make sense to me more, that, that illustrates this for me, is, is imagining a, a husband and a wife trying to bring a child into the world. Now, no husband... Uh, and if he's in his right mind and if he doesn't want to sleep on the couch, is ever going to make the argument that he has suffered in the exact same way as his wife in delivery and labor. But the, the flip isn't true either. That The wife is not then saying, if I'm going to do all the work, you just go over there and keep yourself busy. Rather, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly in moments like this that the wife is saying, I want my husband to join with me and as much as he can to enter into this struggle with me. Rather than the husband fading into the background, this is his moment to step up. This is when he slaps on the headbound and he grabs her hand in one hand. With the other hand, he's got his uh, hand on an ice cube and he's rubbing it on her lips, on her forehead, keeping her cool. He's keeping one eye on the monitor watching these contractions. And while he's coaching her through those with all the lessons they've learned through Lamaze class in order to help her endure the pain. And he's doing that. He's the combination of a water boy, a coach, and a cheerleader on the sideline of the big game in that moment. And so when that moment finally arrives, when their child enters the world, they both rejoice because they've been in the struggle together. And they are holding in their arms the fruit of their labor. See, this is the point that Paul's making to the church. He's saying, don't just pray for me in passing. Would you strive with me in this labor? Our suffering won't look the same, but you can endeavor to struggle with me to the best way you can, that we might have the joy together. He's saying, when I suffer, would you suffer with me through prayer? When I rejoice, would you rejoice with me through prayer? That is what he's asking us to do. And I think this is the most central point I want us to see today because it's vital to our view of prayer If you were to ask any of our goers that have gone to the nations, to the unreached, no matter where they are, North Africa, Middle East, East Asia, and you were to ask them, whose work is more important? Is it yours or is it God's? Every single one of them, I am confident, would tell you it is God's because they understand no matter how much work they do, the the act of moving people from death to life is only by the Spirit, only by the power of God. It's impossible with man. And so if you were to ask them, okay, we, I understand that. So what is the most important thing that you can do no matter where you are? If you're in the middle of, of an unreached people, what is the most important thing that you da- can do daily for the sake of the unreached? I am confident, again, that every single one of them would tell you it's to pray. So we understand it's going to be by him. So we're praying that God would open their hearts and their minds to the truth of the gospel. We're asking that the Lord would allow us to encounter people that he's been preparing that they might enter into the kingdom. And so what I want us to hear today is if the very, the the greatest and most important work that a goer overseas right now can do today is pray to their heavenly father for him to move in a way that means eternal salvation for men and women. In a very real way, in the same way, the most important thing that we can do for the sake of the kingdom and the greatest opportunity we have is to labor alongside them in the most important task. 
which is together as a church body, even here in Austin, Texas, to appeal to our Heavenly Father, saying the same exact thing. Lord, would you open their hearts and minds? Would you allow our laborers to encounter those you are preparing for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your name? That's the point I want us to see. So how specifically? Paul is saying, okay, we have an all-powerful God who is our Father, and I want you to strive with me, church, in your prayers for the sake of unreached. What practically does he ask them to pray for in light of that? Paul says two things. He says, pray that I would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And pray that my service would be acceptable to the saints. He's basically asking the church to pray for two things. He's saying, pray for me, pray for my protection, and pray for those I'm ministering to. For us today as a church, there's a simple way we can begin praying for the nations and praying for our goers. Two things. We can simply pray for our goers. And secondly, we can pray for those our goers are ministering to. So first, we can pray for our goers. How can we pray for our goers? See, Paul is asking for prayers of protection because he knows well in all his ministry that he's encountered suffering at the hands of many different people. He knows that there's men and women in Judea and Jerusalem that would love to do him harm for the sake of the gospel. And so he's praying, he's asking the church to pray with him that he would be protected from them so that the gospel can continue doing its work to the ends of the earth. And so for many of our goers, they, they need that same prayer for protection. Many of them are working among people groups that are naturally hostile to the gospel. And so we need to be praying for them, praying for their protection from those things. But for many of our goers, prayer for protection also includes prayer for continued holiness in their marriage. Prayer for continued faithfulness and hope and joy as they encounter trials of various kinds, whether it's where it's family health issues, or it's challenges in language, and team conflict, displacement due to wars or violence, just to name a few. And we as a church do go to great lengths to minister to our goers from afar, but still the single greatest thing we could do as a body of believers is to pray for them today before our Heavenly Father. So he says, pray for me, pray for our goers. Secondly, we can pray for those that our goers are ministering to. See, Paul knew that even with all his experience in ministry, all his gifting, he needed the Holy Spirit to work in such a way that his ministry would be acceptable. It's the same way today. For all of our goers, for all their training in Bible, all their training in culture, all their training in language, the reality, again, is moving people from death to life is nothing they can do by their skills. It's got to be God alone who moves and works. They, they're responsible to sow the seed of the gospel by proclaiming it and demonstrating it. They're, they're responsible for continuing to water that seed as they continue in relationship and, and call people to the scriptures. But the reality is it's ultimately God who causes the growth that springs up to eternal life. So we can be praying for people like Karim. Karim is a Pakistani cab driver that I met on a recent trip to the Middle East. He works 12 hours a day, seven days a week. His family is still back home in Pakistan. He gets to see them one month out of every year. He does all this to earn $200 a month. It's barely enough for him to live off a fraction of it while he sends the rest back home. And as I talked with him a little bit, it was clear he was depressed. He was frustrated. He missed his wife and kids terribly. And although we only had a brief time together, I knew knew the reality was that the chances of him running into another follower of Christ were slim. And so I pray for Karim. 
I pray that he would know the love of Christ and the Lord would stir his heart to know him more. I pray that he would be stirred to find a copy of the scriptures and read and learn more about Jesus. I pray ultimately that the Lord would bring him another labor to the harvest. We pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up more laborers and I pray that he would have other men and women that go so that there would be someone to walk alongside him and then explain the, the beauty of the gospel to him. I pray that Karim will one day be reconciled to God as his father. That he with joy and worship would be able to lay all these burdens down at Christ's feet, knowing that Christ is his good shepherd and will care for him and his family. So we pray for that. See, when we're praying, we're saying, I know with this, uh, with, with man, this is impossible. We're saying we know with God, all things are possible. When we're praying, we're saying, The nations will not be reached through the strength of God's people, but rather the nations will be reached through God who acts through the prayers of his people. So you might be thinking today, okay, I I see that. We have all-powerful God, the creator of all things, who controls all things, is our father. And we have an opportunity as his children simply to enter into his presence. I see that, and I see that there are people groups that we ought to be praying for and for our goers as well, but... If I was going to be honest right now in reflection, I don't know if I've even prayed for five minutes before for the nations. Much less know what it looks like to strive in prayer together. So the reality is for many of us, the first step towards striving together as a body will simply be learning to pray for five minutes together. So we want to help equip you to do that. At the end of this year, uh, a group of the elders and leaders and a, a huge team of volunteers is going over to Europe. And we're going over there to gather, gather together with over 120 of our goers that are spread out around the world. Our goal for our time with them is simply to minister to them and encourage them. We're going to do that through the teaching of the word. We're going to do that through uh, allowing them to connect with one another and encourage one another. We're going to do that through environments of worship like this where they get to gather together and sing, uh, sing with reckless abandon before their Lord and not worry about the context that's around them. But we want that time to be saturated in prayer because we want it to be a time that's evident that the Holy Spirit is working and ministering in such a way that far exceeds anything we could do by our own ability. And so in order to do that, starting next Sunday, November 27th, we as a church are going to begin to pray for 40 days. What that's going to look like is through the Austin Stone app, on the Austin Stone app, if you download that and look at that on the home page, there's going to be an icon that says 40 days of prayer. When you tap on that icon, it's going to have 40 days listed in there. And on each day, what you'll see when you pull it up is simply uh, a, brief, a brief description about a people group, a statement or two with a couple, uh, couple bits of information, and then a clear prompt of what you can be praying for for that people group. And secondly, it's going to have a very specific prayer request from one of our goers that's working among that people group. So what we want you to do is join with us together as we as a church for 40 days pray for our goers and pray for those they're ministering to. And it may just be for five minutes as you use that, but the reality is God is not moved by long prayers. He's simply moved by our hearts. The reality is when my son Caleb asked me to help our, uh, my daughter, his sister, I didn't turn him away because he didn't put together a 10-minute speech. I didn't say, sorry, son, you didn't do your chores this morning. I need you to work up a little bit more faithfulness before you entertain my audience here. I didn't criticize him on his accuracy and, and, and how he used his words. I didn't say, sorry, son, Every's not actually crying. When I look at her, that's really more of a whine. You'll have to try that again later. 
Now, what, what moved my heart in that moment was simply three little words. He looked at me and he simply said, help my sister. So I encourage us together today to begin praying for the nations. Even if it's just three simple words, would you do that with us? You might be saying, okay, I, I can do that. But in reality, that's still statistics and populations. It's so much easier for me to pray for people I know. Faces and names are so much easier to relate to. It's so much easier for me to pray for family members, men, women, children that I've met. And if you're one of those today, if you're sitting in the audience and you, you say, you know what, I can relate to that. I don't, I don't know a single goer that we've sent. And I don't know uh, much less. I've never interacted with a person from an unreached people group. So it's, it is kind of hard for me to do this. We want you to go with us this year on a short-term trip. We want you this year to go with us and join with members from your community to go for a week to 10 days alongside one of our long-term ministry partners and see God move. We want you to develop relationships with our goers and develop relationships with people from the unreached so that you would have a name and a face and a story. And so in order to do that, starting today, we've posted all the trips we're going to take this spring and summer. Each campus is taking very specific trips with the members of their campus, and you can go out in the foyer today and learn more about where those trips are going. If you want to know more and you want to see all the trips we're taking together as a church, you can go on, online to our website at austinstone.org trips, and you can see all the trips there as well as even begin the application process. If you're not able to go this year, I want you to begin thinking about how can we schedule and plan that to do that next year. Last year, we sent 334 people on short-term trips. Through those trips, there were 928 gospel conversations, which resulted in 116 people beginning to follow Christ. That's exciting because those are people that are now following Christ like Akram. See, Akram is from Syria, and like many refugees, he, he fled the violence in his country and is trying to rebuild his life in Europe. One of our residents, Heather, joined a short-term team recently and went over to Europe and she and a teammate met Akram in refugee housing. They began a conversation with him. They were speaking in English and he was speaking in Arabic. And it, this is just amazing technology these days. They had an entire conversation through Google Translate on their phone. And through that conversation, as they were talking back and forth, ultimately the conversation turned towards Jesus and toward the scriptures. And he, he expressed a desire to learn more. So as they did that, they, uh, Heather handed him a copy of the scriptures in Arabic. And they told him, if you read the book of John, you'll learn about the teachings and life of Christ, what he's done and what he teaches, what it means to know God. So we read that tonight. Before they left, he prepared an elaborate meal for them, and they, they ate together, and then they finally prayed for him, and they went home. They made plans to see him the next day. The next day, they came back, and this time, Heather and her teammate brought two more teammates with them, and those two, more, two other teammates went to a location nearby and began praying for them as they continued their conversation. So Heather and her teammate uh, resumed the, call, uh, the conversation with Akram. And, and as they were reading in their scriptures in English, he was reading in his Arabic copy. And Heather said his eyes were wide open. She said it was like he was reading the, most, uh, the greatest love letter that he'd ever read in his life. As they talked and he had so many more questions, Heather's teammate eventually just laid out the gospel for him talking about who Christ uh, is and who we are and why we needed him to die on the cross for our sins and that he was raised from the dead and how we can be reconciled to God through Christ. And ultimately, her teammate asked Akram, said, Akram, do you believe this? Heather said, Akram looked up with a smile in his eyes. 
He nodded his head and he said, yes. Amen. And, and as they're sitting there, they were suddenly, you know, excited and overwhelmed, but they're trying to figure out, is this, is, did that just really happen? Did he actually just accept Christ? What's going on? So they said, Akram, how can we pray for you? And these are his words. He said, ask that God would forgive my bad things and open locked heart. And so they prayed with him with tear-filled eyes. And Akram thanked them and hugged them. And when they asked what he would do that night, they were just kind of making small talk. And they said, so what are you going to do after this? What are you gonna, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Are you going to go home and eat? Or are you going to go home and sleep? Akram pointed to his backpack where he had just put the, his copy of the scripture. He says, I study. And that's amazing to me because that is the evidence of the spirit working in a man's heart, changing him from death to life. Akram is now a child of God. He is continuing in discipleship with a long-term ministry partner there in Europe. And recently he sent an email via that partner back to us to communicate to the team that was there. And this is what he said. He said, I am now a follower of Jesus. Thank you. You were good news for me. Now when we know that ultimately it was God who was doing the work, right? It was God that opened his eyes and softened his heart to the message of the gospel. But when we think about who was the laborer for the sake of the gospel in that moment, our minds naturally go to Heather and her teammate. They were actually speaking the gospel to him, right? But the reality is, in God's eyes, when he looks at who was laboring for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Akram, it was Heather, her teammate, and the two other teammates that were off at a distance, praying on their behalf, co-laboring with them. More than that, It was every man and woman back here in Austin that was praying for their team, asking God to open the doors for the gospel and change hearts that people would be moved from death to life. You see, Heather, you can see the joy in her eyes when she talks about her new brother in Christ, Akram, because she's seen the fruit of her labor. And we know the reality is for us today that most of us who who prayed for their team will never get to meet Akram likely in this lifetime. But we know the reality is there will be a day when gathered around the throne of Jesus in worship, we'll get to meet Akram. And our hearts will overflow with joy as we get to tell him, Akram, we prayed for you. It's so great to finally meet you. And when I think for our church, what the opportunity is for us as we send hundreds by God's grace to the ends of the earth. The opportunity for our church is that our church's hearts would overflow with joy as we labor alongside with them, as we strive with our brothers and sisters in the most important task for the sake of God's glory and for the nations. When we simply pray, God, would you move? Would you help our brothers and sisters in Christ? And would you move in the hearts of the lost to glorify yourself that they might worship you? That is the opportunity I want us to see as a church today. So I think there's no better way to close than would we start right now? Would we ask the Lord, our Heavenly Father, to move on behalf of His name among the nations? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to call you Father. That from the beginning of time, You set out on this plan to create all things in such a way that they would glorify you. That you made each of us in your image with the purpose of finding our greatest joy and fulfillment in knowing you and worshiping you. Lord, I think about the fact that each of us were 
once your enemies, once hostile to you, separate from you, worshiping everything else but you, but, but you, in the perfect timing, moved us from death to life. You cast our eyes on Christ and his greatness and what he has accomplished for us, that now we can enter into your throne room in confidence as children of the living God. So, Lord, as we look at that joy, we ask, as your children now, would you help our brothers and sisters? We pray for those goers that have willingly stepped out from this body, this community, to the ends of the earth, where by definition, there are few, if any, known believers outside of their teams. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are just like us, that, that, that struggle in the same ways we struggle. Lord, as many of them are are going to bed right now or maybe even asleep right now on the other side of this planet, Lord, we pray you would minister to them. Call their hearts and minds to look to you, Christ. Remind them of your promises, your goodness, your faithfulness, your character. They might wake up with new joy. They would see your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Lord, we pray for the people they're working among that light, the light of salvation would dawn on them. That the chains of, of, of sin and death would be broken. They would rejoice in who you are as they encounter you through the power of your word. Lord, that we would see countless more brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we know there will be a day when you return and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord Christ. We know you're not slow. We know you're patient. You're waiting waiting for men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come into your family for eternal life that we might worship together one day around your throne. And so, Lord, we ask, would you move? Would you move for them? Would you move in our hearts that we we would grow in our desire to see you worshiped? We would grow in our prayer together. We pray these things in your matchless name, Lord.